You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. Ah, yes, it is another episode of Play by Playcast. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, the stream, the download, however you have found this here podcast. The podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by one, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Godet. Follow me on social media, at Joel Godet, or you can email me, J-G-O-D-E-T-T, at B-S-U, .edu. You know, I'm not one of those people that writes things down as I think of them, which character flaw, I guess, because I feel like for the most part Saturdays, because this podcast comes out Friday, I think of a host of things that would be like great introductions to the podcast. And I'm like, oh, perfect. I'll talk about that next week. And then, uh, then we get to next week and I don't remember what any of those things were. So, uh, the introduction to today's podcast uh, is, is a lot of things that I've forgotten this past week. However, uh, I did want to share one thing in particular that I got in an email this week, and it comes to us from a recent friend of the pod, uh, Jeff Munn, um, who was a couple episodes back, if you want to scroll through the archives, he is the, the reigning, defending, undisputed um, state broadcaster of the year in Arizona. And it comes from his time on the Arizona Diamondbacks broadcast team. And it actually involves friend of the pod, Tim Haggerty, who's the double-A voice of the El Paso Chihuahuas right now. You can find uh, Tim's episode by scrolling back through the archives as well. But this anecdote involves the great John Miller. So uh, I will read this email from Jeff Munn verbatim here, and that will be our word of wisdom to begin today's episode. Um, lots of us worry about what to put on a demo, and I used to be one who thought that to impress people, he would put a bunch of game-winning highlight calls. Then in 2009, my opinion did a 180. That year, Tim Haggerty was broadcasting for AA Mobile, and just before the season, called the Diamondbacks director of broadcasting, asked to do a weekly minor league report that Jeff Munn, that I, could run pregame. We explained to him that we couldn't pay him, and he said that was no problem. Also, sage advice right in there, by the way. Uh, His reports were great, and at the end of the season, he came to Phoenix to spend time with the big league club. The night he was there, they were playing the Giants. I was giving Tim the press box tour when I spotted the Giants broadcasters, John Miller, Dave Fleming, Dwayne Kuyper, and Mike Kruko, all seated at one table. All great guys, so I told Tim to introduce, uh, that I would introduce him to them, but that we wouldn't stay long because I'm sure they had to leave soon. Well, Jeff continues, uh, I forgot that John Miller didn't do pregame, and before I knew it, Tim had grabbed a chair and at their invitation was engaged in conversation uh, with John. John told Tim that years earlier, when he was with the Orioles, they had an opening for a number two broadcaster, and uh, the Orioles had asked John to help judge the demo tapes. 
So John told his bosses not to pay as much attention to the person sending highlights as the person who just sent two innings or three innings of play-by-play. And the reason was that John said he wants to know what a broadcaster does in a 7-1 to game in the fourth inning in the middle of July. How does he continue to entertain and engage the audience? John pointed out that anyone can call a walk-off homer, almost anyone can call a walk-off homer, or a game-changing grand slam. But 7-1 to games happen more often than walk-offs. About 30 minutes later, John had to go. I came back and walked Tim through the rest of the press box. And as soon as John left, I put my arm around Tim and said, pal, I think we just paid you. Um, and uh, Tim goes on to, to talk about um, a little bit more about his thoughts on what goes on a demo. Uh, and that's all in reference to some stuff that we talked about on the podcast with Brett Dolan as well a couple of weeks ago. So that's a long-winded way of saying a couple things. One, go listen to the episode with Jeff and with Brett and uh, and with Tim Haggerty, for that matter. I think he's back in like the 70s, I think, if you go scroll through the archives. But our word of wisdom to begin this week's podcast is that uh, when you make a demo, put normalcy on it. Like, what do you sound like nine out of ten days? When somebody just flips on the radio, what do you sound like? And also think about it from this standpoint. We talked about this on the podcast with with Brett a couple weeks ago. When you're having a broadcast, like when I was in college, it was you had to have like the perfect stretch. I had my eight minutes had to be perfect, or my half inning had to be perfect. You're never perfect. Like we're never perfect. If you flub a word, you flubbed a word. It doesn't ruin that half of football. Move on. Or if it's like egregiously noticeable, make fun of yourself. If it makes you laugh, then laugh. It's a human moment. Be a human. We're not robots. We're people who just happen to be broadcasting sports. So uh, take that all into consideration as you do games, as you cut demos, as you listen back to yourself. Uh, Anyway, that being said, our guest today is is Gary Hahn. He is the voice of the North Carolina State Wolfpack, who the Ball State Football Cardinals are playing this weekend. And I actually reached out to Gary. uh, Like, full disclosure, there wasn't going to be an episode this week because I just had too much going on um, to do one. And then I reached out to Gary and I said, hey, while I'm in town for this football game this weekend, do you want to sit down and do an episode? And we just wound up doing it on the phone before we left, uh, which works out in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, number one, we have an episode. And then number two, um, we, we can just both call our games this weekend. Um, so here's Gary Hahn on the phone. We start with actually the small world of broadcasting, because in some ways everything is interconnected. Um, and then quick note, I didn't know the World League of American Football was NFL Europe. I didn't realize those two were one and the same. So don't yell at me about six minutes into this podcast when I don't realize that. But other than that, really fun conversation that uh, navigates through Gary's entire career. I won't spoil it. He does a really good job of diving into it. Um, What drew him to play-by-play, why he loves play-by-play, why writing is such a big part of what he does. Uh, Such a good conversation with Gary Hahn from NC State here on Play by Playcast. Wanted to start with one of the stops along your career because it 
didn't dawn on me until our head coach said something about it this week. Um, but did you broadcast the Carolina Cobras when Mike New was the head coach? Uh, not the head coach. I think he was an assistant under um, Coach Doug Kay before he became the head coach. And I think that was one of the years that I did that. Yeah, Tony Haynes, who I work with, he's our sideline guy. We did the we did the Cobras for a couple of years. I think, and I think it was 2000 and 2001, and then they left Raleigh and went to Charlotte. And I think that's when Mike New became the head coach. Gotcha. I know he. Uh, I know he had his first house in Raleigh. He was saying, but uh, it's a small world how that works out. Um, yeah, I think he was. An, I think he was an assistant under Doug K. Gotcha. Um, but I don't remember a whole lot about that except for arena football it was a lot of fun to do, <laughs> and uh, you know we were fairly competitive. Well, and, but it was a it was a fun. Uh, it's a fun sport, and you got to be a really good athlete to play it. On top of that, and I feel like I should know the answer to this, but what was the World League of American Football? Well, that was back in 1991, and it was a uh, experiment, I think, by the NFL. And um, there were teams in, let's see, Raleigh, Sacramento, California, uh, Montreal. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Uh, there was one in London. There was one in Frankfurt, Germany, so I actually got to go to London and Frankfurt, Germany. I'd never been to either place, and I've never been back since, so that was pretty nice. Uh, the only thing wrong about, <clears throat> excuse me, the Skyhawks was the fact that uh, we never won a game. <laughs> we were 0-12 or 0-11, and every week we would come up with a different way to lose. Our uh, head coach was Roman Gabriel the uh, great uh, Rams quarterback and Eagles quarterback. And he had, of course, played at NC State and right, was an yeah. All-American. And uh, he was he was fun to be around, but he took losing very, very hard. And uh, so anyway, it was uh, that was another <laughs> that was another experience. I had uh, much more fun doing uh, uh, arena football than I did the World League, because no matter where we went, even if it was a close game, we ended up losing. I actually, I didn't, I didn't realize that's what became NFL Europe. Um, that's wild that Raleigh, Durham, and Barcelona uh, would meet like that. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I got to do a game <laughs> at Wembley Stadium in London. I got to do a game in uh, uh, Frankfurt, Germany, and they they were basically soccer venues that they made into a football field. And of course, the soccer fans are really wild, so they would have these fences. You know, these high fences up in front of the stands because I guess soccer fans throw things onto the field and everything else. And there was all of this uh, security that you had to go through. And this was, of course, way before 9-11. And I was thinking, man, these people must be animals over here. <laughs> uh, what was cool about doing the arena games? Well, just the fact that it was an entirely different game. And uh, you had a man in motion. Uh, he was called the specialist. And he could he could get in motion and uh, lined up about ten yards behind the line of scrimmage and got a running start. And uh, right when the ball is snapped, he would cross the line of scrimmage. Sometimes he'd be a little bit ahead, but they never seemed to flag him. And uh, it was a, an offensive game. I mean, a lot of games would be sixty-six to you know sixty or sixty-three to fifty-nine or whatever. And basically, if you could just get some stops, you had a chance to win or force a field goal. Uh, you had a you had a good chance to win the game, but uh, a lot of the, most of the guys played both ways. 
They were incredible athletes. Uh, and, uh, well, I, I had a, I had a time learning the rules, but once I learned the rules, uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. What was the, the challenge broadcasting wise, just from doing something different? Um, how, how did it differ from if you were going to go call, a an 11 on 11 football game? Well, uh, the engineering setup was a little bit uh, strange because we played in a lot of hockey arenas. So that's where you would have the game. And uh, there'd be big nets at both end zones. Um, and, the, and the kickoff was really cool because you'd kick it into a uh, net and you'd play the carom. And then you'd start to move up the field. And so the kickoff was one of the most exciting things of the uh, of the game as well. But the preparation was pretty much the same, except your charts would be different. There'd be less people, um, all that sort of stuff. But uh, I got ready for that game just like I did high school games in Indiana and college games later and, uh, you know, World League of uh, American football, whatever. Football's kind of football. There were just yeah. different rules and there were fewer players. But you still had to, uh, had to have a, a spot chart. Uh, detailed spot chart you still had to do a lot of number memorization and you had to be ready because things happened even faster on that field than they did a regular football field let's go back uh let's go back to the very beginning if i can backtrack uh you mentioned doing high school games in indiana um where did you get your start and and what where did you even before that what turned you on to broadcasting first and foremost well, I grew up in western Pennsylvania, about nine miles from the Ohio border, in a place called Beaver Falls, which is actually the hometown for uh, Joe Namath. His dad, mom and dad were divorced, but his dad lived a couple of blocks away from my granddad in New Brighton, Pennsylvania, which is right next door to Beaver Falls. And about uh, five years old, about five, six years old, uh, I started listening to the Pittsburgh Pirates on KDKA in Pittsburgh. And they had two future Hall of Fame announcers. One was Bob Prince, and he was a wild man. And the other one was Jim Woods, and he was a straight man. And he was one of the best number two broadcasters ever in Major League Baseball. And Prince and Woods made it so much fun to listen to that I thought, you know, I watched my granddad come home from St. Joe Led. He was a, uh, uh, what do you call it, supervisor in the furnace plant. He was a foreman in the furnace plant. He'd come home. His clothes would be all dirty. It was a hot job. My dad worked in the same plant. I had other relatives working in steel mills and stuff like that. And I thought, you know, it doesn't look like they're having much fun. But Jim Woods and Bob Prince are having a lot of fun. And uh, I wonder what uh, having a job like that would be like uh, to have that much fun and still get paid for it. And so uh, by the time I was about 13 years old, I knew what I wanted to be. I wanted to be the voice of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, that never materialized, but I knew I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And so I kind of set my sights on trying to go to a college where I could study broadcasting and get a chance to uh, do a lot of uh, hands-on uh, work because uh, I found out that a lot of these broadcasting colleges you was basically book learning until you were a senior then you got a little taste of it then you had to go out in the world and most of these people weren't prepared so i wanted to go to some place where i could get on the air as a freshman make all sorts of mistakes with nobody listening nobody caring and uh, that's kind of what uh, i ended up doing i went to butler university they had a good radio and tv department but they allowed freshmen to get on the air on a uh, radio station wajc that was um a fairly powerful station, FM station, had a had a big tower, and it got out about 60 miles. 
and uh, it was just a great experience. Uh, and that's sort of where I really started to grow in broadcasting. And then by the time I was a, a junior, I moved to uh, uh, doing some part-time work, and I finally got my first commercial a job. It was out in this little Quonset hut in Lebanon, Indiana called <laughs> WNON. It was a toilet, but uh, I got to be on the air and I got to do things and I got paid for it. So Saturdays and Sundays, I would be out there uh, doing whatever they you know, asked me to do. And uh, so I got myself some commercial experience. And just from there, just uh, just kept on kept on growing and uh, graduated from uh, uh, Butler and then had an internship at uh, TV 13, WLWI, in Indianapolis as a uh, second semester senior. That was pretty much my entire year. I think I had a couple of night classes, but I worked as a news intern in an eyewitness newsroom. Uh, and um, that was a great experience. And I worked with a guy uh, called David Letterman. He was a Ball State graduate, oh, yeah. and he was the weekend weatherman and had a, had a little shtick called freeze-dried movies on Saturday night where he could do some of his comedy and was also a union booth announcer. And uh, he kind of felt uh, he would sit in the booth and write comedy material, I found out later. He was always in there writing stuff, and uh, later I found out that's basically what it was. He was writing comedy material. But he decided that he wanted to go someplace where he could uh, sort of start to bloom in his in his comedy career. And so he went to a radio station. They gave me the booth announcing job and it was good money and I didn't have to do a whole lot. But a new GM came in after about, uh, I don't know, six or seven months. And he said, look, uh, I just can't pay a booth announcer. You're going to have to do weekend weather like Letterman did. I'm going to give you an audition. And if uh, you pass, you got the job. If you don't, you're fired. Well, he didn't like my audition, and I was out the door, and so I got fired from basically my first decent broadcasting job. <laughs> but I wasn't uh, unemployed for very long. I um, uh, About four days later, after a trip to San Antonio for an all-sports job out in the middle of nowhere in Seguin, Texas, uh, I came back and decided I wanted to stay in Indianapolis, and a friend of mine was working for WIRE, which was the big, powerful country music station, and I basically went over there and became a sort of a jack of all trades and master of none. But I still wanted to get into sports. And I helped the guy who did IU basketball, Don Fisher, who's still doing it. Yeah. Is still doing IU football and basketball. And we became friends. And I tried to do as much as I could for him and learn as much as I could from him. And, uh, after a few a couple of years at wire, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to, uh, to do anything more there. And so I started to send out feelers, and uh, uh, one of the years I was at Wire, I uh, got in my 69 Pontiac and went around looking for a job, and uh, I uh, went to Plainfield, Indiana, where a guy there had a radio station and wanted to do a lot of sports. And so uh, he liked my tape, and he hired me to do uh, Plainfield High School, Avon High School, um, football, basketball, women's basketball, boys' basketball. I also did about, uh, I don't know how many selected Butler University games. I talked Butler into um, allowing WNON to do road games and a couple of uh, home games. And uh, Larry Bird was at Indiana State at that time. And so I did two, two games with Bird. He scored 46 against Butler one of the games, 48 the other one, and he looked like he wasn't even trying. Uh, he was incredible. But uh, that year, I think I did about 80, 80 broadcasts of play-by-play. Uh, -play. 
and that's kind of where I sort of sort of started to uh, uh, cement my style and and uh, really learned how to prepare for games in a fairly quick and thorough basis. And um, uh, that was that was really really huge. And from there, I went to uh, Louisville, became a full time sportscaster, and then to uh, uh, NBC Radio in uh, New York. Uh, when the uh, people that uh, owned uh, WAVE in Louisville, who I worked for, were selling out. And uh, they liked me, and they were nice enough to give me time to get another job. And so this one kind of fell into my lap. Uh, I would do reports for NBC Radio as a stringer. And uh, they sent a guy down from uh, New York, unbeknownst to me, who was, who was there. He, he said he was coming down to help me. Uh, cover the derby for nbc radio and i thought i don't need any help but you know if he wants to come down fine well he wasn't a helper he was a scout and they wanted to watch me and see me work and check out my personality and they hired me and so i was there for a couple of years but i wasn't doing uh, hardly any play-by-play i get to do a bowl game every once in a while around christmas and I really wanted to uh, be a play-by-play announcer, and I kind of felt like I was stuck. So I started to send out resumes again and tapes, and I uh, got hired at uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, became the voice of the Ohio State Buckeyes for a couple of years. And due to some uh, family issues, uh, thought that it would be it was a big mistake at the time, but <laughs> thought I was doing the right thing by leaving, and ended up in uh, uh, Alabama. Uh, with uh, just doing radio news for a small station in Huntsville, Alabama, and then uh, got on the Alabama network as a uh, uh, pregame and postgame host for football and then a color man for basketball. And I worked with Eli Gold, who is a uh, renowned uh, racing announcer and has been the uh, voice of Alabama football for quite a few years. And, uh, uh, we got to know each other very well, worked well together, and he knew how much I wanted to be, uh, you know, the voice of uh, some somebody's team. And he found out that the guy at uh, NC State, Wally Osley, was retiring, and he told me about it. And he said, you know, I think if you send him something, you can get that job. Well, I was right on it and uh, sent my stuff in, and there were 130 applicants for the job, and. Uh, the Lord opened up some incredible doors for me, and I've uh, been here for 30 years. So that's uh, that's a long, drawn-out uh, synopsis of uh, how I got uh, involved in broadcasting, where I've been, and where I am now. But you said it was a half-hour podcast, so we, we got to fill the time with something. Yeah, we got we got time by all means. Um, let me unpack some of that if I can. Um, how good a weatherman was David Letterman? Like what? What do you? What do you? Uh, he wasn't your conventional weatherman. He was. <laughs> uh, he was a little bit offbeat. He. Uh, he didn't take it real seriously, uh, but he was funny and he was entertaining, and that's why he kept his job, because he was different. And when people t- tuned him in and turned him on, they knew that they were going to get something different instead of just cold fronts and warm fronts. And he was going to crack jokes and. He was going to do some stuff. Now, if there was a tornado or something, he could get serious, obviously, because that was serious stuff. But uh, most of the time, he was uh, he was doing it in his own sort of personality. And uh, he sort of walked to the beat of a, a different drummer, and you could just tell. But he was a regular guy. You could approach him and uh, kid around with him, and he liked to have fun. 
And uh, I don't think anybody around there at the time, and of course I was just a news intern, so I was on the low end of the totem pole. So I didn't have a whole lot of contact with him. I'd say hi to him every once in a while or, uh, you know, just something small talk or I'd listen to him talking to somebody else or something, but I didn't have a whole lot of contact with him. Yeah, and and but, who knew um, then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who, who knew then? But, but you knew that, that he was that he had he, he had some offbeat talent. I guess that's about the best way I could put it. He had offbeat talent. And after he was at that radio station in Indianapolis for, I don't know, maybe a couple of years, he just decided one day, told his wife, I'm uh, packing up the car, I'm going to Hollywood, and it's either, it's either uh, I'm going to make it or bust. And he went out there and went to the comedy clubs, and uh, all of a sudden he became a hit, got on The Tonight Show, and then got on the Tonight Show as a guest host, and then later I guess and oh I'm trying to remember NBC hired him to host the show after the Tonight Show, and then you know he, he lands at uh, CBS and he's a you know he's a big star. So uh, it was it was pretty incredible. Is there something to be taken from the idea that obviously he had a very serious job, but he he did it with his own flair and he did it with his own style, and he was able to to inject some personality and humor and. Um, and make something his own, and, and is that a good way for other people to go about doing things, or does it work for people like him because he is who he is? I think it works for him because he's who he is, but there's a bottom line um, issue here. Uh, you can't be somebody else. I can't be anybody but me. Right. Now, I can take a little bit from uh, – you know, Joe Tate of the Cleveland Cavaliers, and I can take a little bit from Keith Jackson, and I can take a little bit from Brad Nestler, and I can take a little bit from different people, and I can try to work it in and say, man, that was really good. Maybe I had to try that once in a blue moon and, you know, run it up the flagpole and see how it flies. But I can't be those people. I have to be me. And uh, I can't be David Letterman. I can be funny at times off the air, but I find it harder to be funny on the air. Sure. And so I just try to give people a, uh, a, a, the best description that uh, a man can offer a blind man of a football game on, on radio or a basketball game on radio or a college baseball game on radio. And that's what I try to do. I try to load it up with information that they can't get anywhere else. I try to make it entertaining when I can, but I can't be David Letterman funny. And so I don't try to be now every once in a while, something will come out that's pretty darn funny, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's not because I was j j trying to, to do that or because I had that kind of uh, offbeat talent. Uh, you have to be yourself and you have to develop your own style and then you have to, to go with it. It doesn't mean that you can't improve in certain areas and do things a little bit better and polish things up, but you still have to be yourself. And I, he was, he was, himself. <laughs> he was himself. Um, let's talk about New York a little bit, if I can. Um, what was it like? And I, I mean, probably not too different from uh, magnifying glass as it is today. But what was it like to be in that bowl as a broadcaster and to be in that market and operate at that level? Um, what did you like about it? And then what ultimately was the lure of I need to call games that made you say, I'm okay moving on from, from market one because I want to pursue my true passion. Well, it was culture shock. I was going from Louisville, Kentucky, where there was uh, grass and trees and, uh, you know, traffic wasn't all that uh, bad. And uh, you had room to move. And uh, then I got to go to uh, New York City, 
which is totally different. <laughs> I mean, there are just too many rats in the cage there and they start biting each other. And, uh, you know, you got really rude people. Uh, you've got uh, traffic problems. Uh, you've got uh, all of this different stuff. And the cost of living was uh, horrendous. Uh, fortunately, I was making uh, a lot more money than I made in Louisville. So it sort of bounced, balanced it all out. But it was basically culture shock. And uh, I was on 300 stations coast to coast on the weekends. And then I was a reporter during the week. And so I never had that kind of an audience before. And I had other people that I had to answer to. It just wasn't me being on the air. It was a union operation. So we had a producer. And the producer would basically tell you, here are the stories that we're going to cover. And you write them. And, uh, you know, you write the intros, the sound cuts. I'm going to get cuts from so-and-so and such-and-such. And, such and uh, here's the way I want you to structure the, the sportscast. And so I had to follow those directions. And then we had a director that was uh, would tell the engineer what to do, you know, ready uh, cart two or whatever, that kind of stuff. And he would also coordinate all the stringers. He would have them on the air. And when they when, when they were live or whatever, he'd tell them go. You know, and you never hear that on the air, but that's what he was doing. He directed everything. And then you had an engineer, a uh, union engineer that was uh, was running the uh, uh, all the sound and, you know, getting us on the air and all of that stuff. And you had to be very precise. You had uh, breaks where you had to be out at a certain time and you had to be out right on that time. You couldn't upcut it. Uh, you didn't want to you didn't want to be out beforehand because there'd be dead air. And there were automated stations that would then, you know, trip and uh, go into their uh, programming because of that. And so you had to be very, very precise. And I'd never been in that sort of uh, pressure, uh, time pressure situation before. And that was uh, something I had to learn uh, about. I had to learn it quickly and I had to become uh, very proficient. Fortunately, I was a pretty good writer and I learned from other good writers there. There was a guy working there. It was an anchor, Stan Martin. He'd been a newsman at on the ABC radio network. They had plenty of ABC networks. I'm not sure whether it was information or contemporary or what other, but he he worked over there. This guy knew how to write. And so I would listen to him and I would uh, go back and I'd get his scripts. All the scripts were in a big basket you know, from the previous day. And I just go over his scripts and see how he intro things and stuff like that. I learned a bunch just by reading Stan Martin's scripts. And there were other people in that newsroom too, because we were in there with the NBC News. So you're in there with Cameron Swayze and uh, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the, the other people now and they're kind of going, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, Wally Robinson. And uh, they're just above Let's see, there's a guy at CBS, Gary Nunn. Uh, he was working for NBC at the time. He was very, very good. And so you had all these really polished people who knew how to write, knew how to announce, knew how to, uh, they knew how to do all this stuff. And here I am, a rookie coming in. And there were some times in the weekends, I can remember telling Stan Martin one time, I said, Stan, I'm not sure I belong here. And he stood me up against the wall and he said, look, they wouldn't have hired, they wouldn't have hired you if you weren't good enough. So you better change your attitude and uh, remember that you're good enough to do this and you can do it and you will do it. And so after he kind of dressed me down, straightened me out, I was OK after that. But uh, it was a little bit of a culture shock right there at the beginning. But uh, what got me away from there was um, the fact that I still had a dream and I wasn't really fulfilling that dream 
And as far as play-by-play was concerned in New York City, you had to really know people. And uh, the people that uh, you really had to know, you had to know the Albert family. <laughs> it's, it seemed like they could uh, they could open up doors for people or shut doors for people, or it seemed like that anyway. Or you had to know somebody and have an agent who could get you stuff, and I just didn't have you know, any of that. So I, I thought, well, if I'm going to do what I really want to do, I'm going to have to leave here. And so I started sending out uh, feelers and uh, one of them came back from Columbus, Ohio. And they said, within a year, we're going to have the rights to Ohio state football. And we want you to come and host a uh, talk show and do sports casts. And then when we get the rights, uh, you're the man. And that's exactly what happened. They were, they were true to their word and uh so i did the buckeyes for a couple of years and uh that was a great great experience uh absolutely great experience and um uh, i grew in that job as well and like i say it was it was a mistake to uh, leave there but there were some circumstances i'm not going to get into now that uh kind of set that up and um you know that's that's kind of the way it worked out but um Doing Ohio State football was that was that was a big deal. You mentioned being a good writer at NBC or having to be a good writer at NBC. Um, does that impact you to this day? Like I know what we do now, you're speaking extemporaneously for three hours, but the fact that you had to write scripts and be able to work under a time crunch and I, how much of that still applies to the way that you wordsmith when you set up and, and call a game for the Wolfpack. Well, it still is a big part of it because I learned a long time ago, if you get off to a bad start in a pregame show, the rest of the day is going to be tough. <laughs> it really will. Yeah. Because if you're kicking it around at the beginning, you're going to be backpedaling the whole day. And so what I try to do, uh, and I've tried to, I've, I've still done this. I try to sort of either write out a few notes of things that I want to talk about in the pregame, or if I'm really uptight and it's a big game or something like that and i know we've got a heck of an audience i'll actually sort of script out uh part of it just to get started and uh that seems to get me going and if we have a good you know if i'm if i've done my segment really really well then i feel like the rest of the day is going to go great and uh you want to you don't want to let people think that you're reading this stuff so your writing style has to be the way you would speak it and of course, you're not talking, you know, real fast like you would uh, read a sportscast, and you're running out of time. And uh, <laughs> you know, this is weekend sports on the NBC <laughs> Radio Network. You know, you can't you can't do that. But uh, I've found that that works good. And if I couldn't write, I wouldn't be able to do that. And it would it would it would sound terrible, and it would sound like I was reading. But uh, uh, the way I seem to write, and nobody can tell. And so that's uh, that's good. Uh, I like that because I feel better. I feel like I'm totally prepared. And to me, pregame is something that um, it's important. It's important to get off to a good start. And uh, then when I'm finished with my part of pregame, then I can just concentrate on what's coming next. And for football, uh, when I turn it over to the other people who do pregame, uh, then I'm got my binoculars on and I'm watching the opposing uh, team warm up. I'm seeing who's out there. I'm seeing who's running first string when they line up 
and run their skeleton drills and all that sort of stuff, and it really helps me get ready. And uh, when they're throwing the ball to number eight, I know immediately who number eight is. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of recall you have to have uh, when you're doing a football game or any kind of uh, play-by-play event. I'm always fascinated by what people have in front of them. Um, what do you put on a board, and, and what's important for you to have at a, at a fingertip uh, length from you? Well, I've got a board that I have like the, uh, well, for this coming weekend, for instance, uh, I'd have the Ball State offense against the NC State defense, and then I would just flip it over, and you'd have the NC State uh, offense against the Ball State defense. And I would basically uh, just line it up like a normal uh, two-deep depth chart. You'd have the uh, uh, the offensive line up there with their backups. And then the one side you'd have the, the tight end with his backups and you'd have the, uh, uh, one of the outside receivers with their backups. And then below that you'd have wide receivers. There's usually four wide receivers now, uh, counting the tight end sometimes, well, there's three usually counting the tight end and when the ball state chart, you got a fullback. So you got three wide receivers, a tight end, a fullback and a, and a running back. And then you put the quarterback behind the offensive line, then the fullback, and then the running backs. And then with each um, player, of course, you have their number, their name, uh, what's their, what class they're in, whether they're a redshirt junior or whatever, their height, their weight. Uh, and I always like to put as the first thing under all of that, are they a fourth-year starter, third-year starter, third-year reserve, first-year reserve? You know, what, what What are they? And then some things about what they do. Uh, is this the number one rusher on the team? Uh, you know, maybe uh, Caleb Hunt, Huntley led uh, Ball State uh, with 86 rushing yards last week against Florida Atlantic. He ran for 1,000 yards in uh, 2017. Yeah. He was injured last year. You just have things that you can put in there. Now, you're only going to use about a fourth of all of that, but you don't know which fourth you're going to use and when you're going to use it. So three quarters of it gets thrown in the trash, but uh, and then there's a lot of other stuff on this board too. You always put down uh, what uh, the opposing team is uh, averaging, how many points, how many yards a game, how many yards rushing, how many plays they run a game, what they are on third down, um, what their turnover margin is, what they are in red zone touchdowns, uh, how many penalties they average a game, things like that. And then at the bottom, I've got these notes that I put in there. Uh, that, uh, for instance, Ball State returns eight starters on offense uh, from an injury plague four and eight team. Uh, they had four turnovers in last week's loss to Florida Atlanta, blah, blah, blah. Just little yeah. things that I could throw in there if I have to. Most of the time, I don't need much of that because I've got an excellent color man, Johnny Evans, who uh, played at NC State and was an All-American and then played for the Cleveland Browns and then in the Canadian Football League. And this guy really knows football. And uh, and then I've got a, a tremendous sideline reporter, Tony Haynes, who's like an analyst on the field. And uh, I have to allow them to come in and give their insights as well. Uh, it just can't be me. So I'm sort of like the ringmaster of a three ring uh, deal where we're all trying to get as much information to the public as possible and do the best job as possible. And so far, you know. For many, many years, it's worked, and I think we've uh, we get a pretty favorable rating by uh, most uh, most people who listen. How do you organize kind of storylines or storytelling, or when you go into a, a game and say, I don't know, like these are okay, these are cool, interesting stories. They might be related to the game, they might not be. It might be a human interest thing, but you really that's something you want to make sure you hit or 
how you go into a game and say, all right, like this is the arc that we're going in with and, you know, we'll revisit it and see how the game dictates. Like, how do you approach here's the story we're going to tell and, and setting yourself up to um, do that in a coherent fashion? Well, sometimes it's what happened the week before. Uh, for NC State, uh, the week before we recorded this, State went to West Virginia with a very young team, 45% of the roster, freshmen, sophomores. And uh, that was the first time with a brand-new quarterback. It was just his third college start. Uh, State uh, had a lot of losses on offense from the previous year. Uh, there are like uh, three or four players that were on that offense and are now playing in the NFL, including Ryan Finley, who's the backup quarterback for the Bengals. And uh, Jacoby Myers, who's catching Tom Brady's passes now at uh, New England. So, uh, there, you know, that's a lot to lose. So you go into West Virginia, it's your first Power 5 opponent, and they, they smack State in the mouth. State played well enough to win in the first half, uh, did not play well enough to win in the second half, lost 44-27. to 27. So obviously, uh, you know, you'd set it up. Uh, this is a bounce-back uh, situation uh, for a team. And, uh, you know, how is this team going to respond? Uh, are they going to, you know, keep uh, West Virginia uh, in the rearview mirror, or are they going to put West Virginia in the rear uh, rearview mirror and then take their eyes and start looking toward the front of the car? Mm. So, uh, you know, that's part of the story. This is a team that's got to improve every week. So we talk about, you know, uh, where, where does it have to improve in this particular game? Uh, things like that. So sometimes the week before dictates your story. Uh, other times it'll be a, uh, uh, an injury or something that might have happened off the field. Fortunately, at State, that doesn't happen too many times. Uh, it could be, you know, uh, you're playing Clemson, and if you win this game, you'll tie for the Atlantic Division lead. Well, obviously, you know, that'll be a national game. Yeah. So you've got a different storyline. So it just depends on what the situations are as far as what the storylines come up. But they're usually pretty well defined. You, most of the time, you don't have to scrape for a storyline, uh, especially after you've been in the business for a while. You can pretty much right. identify those and then, you know, go with them. And, of course, I've got two other analysts who are going to break down those um, issues and get into it a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. So that's the nice thing about the team that we have. Uh, we've got a really good team. We've been together for uh, 30 years. Well, most of us, Tony was uh, started at Duke and then came over, but he's been there for 20 years. And so just about everybody on the team from the spotter to the statistician to everybody, we've all been together and uh, we know each other. We like each other. We don't try to do each other's job. I know my job is to describe the game. Johnny's job is to analyze it. Tony is to give a different insight from the field as to what Johnny just said or try to lead Johnny into some area that he hasn't gone into that Tony sees. And uh, it works out good. We've got a lot of people watching even today with all the delay and all the stuff with HDTV. Uh, we got a lot of people that still turn the sound up on the radio for, for whatever reason. And uh, they listen to us. So that's uh, that's a pretty good, pretty good situation. Last thing, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I did want to ask you about that team a little bit more. Um, just from the standpoint of how do you best utilize them and set them up for success? Uh, like, do you pretty much just call a play and say, "All right, I'm going to get out of the way now," or will you say, 
uh, will you take it upon yourself to lead them in certain directions or um, is that all kind of like, hey, let me just get out of the way and let them um, put, you know, their expertise to work? It's a combination of all of it. Sometimes I do lead uh, Johnny. Other times something will happen on the field. I know he's got something to say. I'll just turn to him and point my finger at him. Okay. <laughs> and that's all I got to do. Right. He'll, he'll, he'll take over from there. And then uh, Tony will chime in or my uh, engineer, David Modlin, will tell me in my ear, go to Tony. And so I don't even have to know what Tony's got. Um, you know, I'll just say, uh, let's go to the sidelines, Tony. And he'll just, well, Gary, I'm not, you know, that was just a terrible call or, you know, we don't get into too much of that either. I think that's one thing that helps us. Mm. Uh, we are pretty objective. Uh, people know that we care about whether the Wolfpack wins or not. But we're not like some of these uh, uh, programs. I mean, I've heard some of them before coming back from different road trips where we were in the car listening. Yeah. And some of it's absolutely embarrassing. I mean, uh, it's just, uh, oh, I'm gonna, we need to call a conference commissioner about this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm thinking, it's, you, you just don't understand how dumb that sounds, how bad that sounds, how unprofessional that sounds how awful that is what a button pushing turnoff that is for people who are listening and uh i just i just can't go there it's like people always say uh like do you ever get upset when the team loses and i'm like to an extent like yeah like i'm a fan deep down i want them to win but to the same token like i've never lost a game and i've never won a game and like the sun will rise tomorrow so you call it as objectively as you can yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, you can't uh, you can't be crying on the air or anything like that. That's just absolutely, and I've heard that too. Um, that's absolutely ridiculous. And uh, I was always taught that you need to try to grab the most people and keep them listening for the longest time. Yeah. And you can't do that if you're doing stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, or if you're just way over the top, uh, you're going to turn a bunch of them off. You're, you're going to have a kook base probably that's still <laughs> hanging in there, but you're going to turn a lot of them off and you do your advertisers absolutely no good. You're of no service to your advertisers doing that. and They're the ones who are paying the freight. Yeah. Gary, how do people uh, find you if you're on social media or, or how do they listen to the Wolfpack uh, throughout the season? Uh, I'm not on social media because uh, I'm scared of Facebook and all the <laughs> stuff that's been going on with that and uh, Twitter. So uh, I'm not on social media, but um uh let's see uh on tune in radio you can get us i believe we're on tune in radio if you've got that app um you could go to gopack g-o-p-a-c-k dot com and there is a uh, listen uh, live thing there I, I think you have to pay a slight subscription fee for that um I'm trying to think of where else uh, people could uh uh, could go. Our flagship station is WRALFM in Raleigh, and that's part of Capital Broadcasting. So you might be able to go to WRALFM.com. Uh, those are just some of the uh, places. But we're, we're our network is basically in North Carolina. I don't think we have any affiliates out of state, but we do cover about 90. I think we cover about 98 percent of North Carolina which is pretty heavily populated. So that's, uh, that's our basic audience. And we're obviously broadcasting to NC state fans or interested parties in NC state football, basketball, or baseball. Gary, uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to seeing you this weekend. 
Same, same here, and let me know if I can do anything for you. All right, that is Gary Hahn from NC State here on Play by Playcast. As you listen to this, I am on a plane headed to go see the NC State Wolfpack, Ball State Football Cardinals, headed to Carter-Finley Stadium to take on uh, the pack on Saturday night. ESPNU and Ishraf, by the way, if you would like to uh, watch him and Ball State and NC State on your television, uh, they will have that coverage for you as well. Uh, but you can also catch yours truly by heading to BallStateSports.com. Um, writing, like I talked about it in the intro, I, I've talked to students that come through Ball State that I've talked to sometimes. Like, be a writer. Even though we're play-by-play guys and we're extemporaneously speaking for hours on end, be a writer. Because when you're extemporaneously talking, you're still writing. You're just not writing it down. Pays to be a good writer. Pays to be a good... Uh, Literarian, vocabularian. This is a perfect example of why I should be better. Because there's definitely a word that goes here right now, but I can't think of it. <laughs> wordsmith. Pays to be a better wordsmith. Anyway, that does it for this episode of PXPCast. Many thanks to Gary for joining us. Uh, many thanks to Jeff Munn, by the way, for chiming uh, back in with uh, our little intro nugget today. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Seven-day hiatus. Back at it. This is PXPCast. My name is Joel Godet, and we are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.